Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, hello, hello. This is Lawrence McCarran, the New Books Network special series on military fiction. In this series, we're going to introduce you to some of the best authors writing military fiction today. Uh, small unit tactics are super uh, central to military fiction. Uh, anybody who's uh, read military fiction, is uh, the next thing that's getting you turning those page, pages are uh, those small unit tactics, SEAL teams hunting for the bad guys and all that good stuff. So today we're, uh, we're focusing on, on that uh, with our book Shadow Wars by uh, Jake Kamansky. Jake, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Lawrence? Uh, doing good today. Uh, so getting into your your background, I was uh, as I'm turning this book, I, I I just see some expertise coming through. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, I, uh, I was an undercover cop, and then uh, I ran undercover operations in South Florida during the I guess piece we always kind of affectionately refer refer to them as the Miami Vice years in the late '80s and '90s. Um, I ran uh, undercover ops against the Colombian cartels, uh, worked undercover also, but mostly at that point, uh, I was really running ops with my men and women that worked for me. Uh, after 25 years, I retired, and uh, then I went to work for the United States government uh, as an advisor, special advisor on uh, undercover ops and, uh, and covert ops um, to all, some of our allies across, around the world. You say around the world, so uh, where where exactly did you spend your time? Majority of my time was spent in the Balkans. Uh, I got there right after the war, the, the war between um, the old Yugoslavia and the, the former Yugoslavia. So uh, we were there to assist, uh, advising on things like, you know, the tracking down of war criminals, um, dealing with uh, helping them build up capacity to go after people that were trafficking and women. Um and things and organized crime and drug trafficking. And uh, most of our time was spent not only there, but also in other countries in Eastern Europe. Oh, wow. So when you're, uh, were you out in the communities uh, seeing kind of the, the aftermath of some of that? Yeah. Uh, when I was first there, we were attached to the NATO forces in a part of uh, S4. Uh, and so we were out and about. We didn't stay on the military bases. We stayed out in the communities, whether we were in Zagreb or Bosnia and Sarajevo uh, or in. We also did some consulting in Kosovo and Montenegro, different places like that. All places that had been affected by the war, particularly early on in, 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 in Bosnia. There was so much damage from all the uh, ethnic cleansing and stuff like that. It was quite a shock to me, really. I, I can only imagine. I mean, we were sitting stateside, seeing some of the imagery on on the news coming from that area. Uh, I know seeing that firsthand must have been uh, pretty hard. It was it was humi- it was humbling to me to see what people had gone through, and yet they still kept their spirits up. Uh, it was uh, it was a whole something I'd never thought of before. And later, you know, I would read a lot about it, and because you know, when you're there, you just see some, you just see it firsthand, but you don't see the big picture. But then later, reading about it, and 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 saying that it was the biggest genocide since World War II, which was really shocking to me. And I think the world was a little slow to, to realize how bad it was before the United States finally intervened. 
but uh, my goodness, whole villages destroyed. And um, really, in a way, it was it was about a lot of things. It was about you, you know a lot of it was religious based also though. So it was it was quite puzzling to see you know so many people killed in in essence a lot of it in the name of religion. Especially religions that teach, uh, teach peace. Um, so as uh, part of the person, you know, helping people with the criminal investigations, the war crimes investigations, do you feel like uh, you were able to leave uh, kind of a sense of uh, closure in some with some people? I think so. I mean, uh, you know, we had huge teams of people. I was just one little person involved in all that. But I do think most of now, by now, almost all the Serbian war criminals have been and I think a couple of Croatian war criminals were brought to justice. And, uh, yes, the big ones uh, were taken to the the International Tribunal in Hague and tried. And uh, one of them, I think, passed away in custody. But the, the big architects of that, of the real massacres, are have all been caught. That's oh, that's that's good to know. The, so, um, kind of fast forwarding, because uh, the part one of your book uh, has it placed in um, central Bosnia, and I, I think it was 1994. Um, what, how did how did the imagery that you uh, evoked in the in the chapters there um, was that uh, inspired by your time there? Yeah, absolutely. I think. I, you know, this was my first book. So I, of course, reached out to a lot of my colleagues that I served with. And, and I just wanted to say, does, do, does the atmosphere feel right? You know, because the atmosphere there was so, so dismal, I mean, even after the war, not because there was so much destruction, but also the climate there is quite, uh, is quite depressing. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a large, it's always gray and dismal there. And uh, the air pollution is terrible from people not having any money and, you know, they have coal burning plants there that it's just yellow smoke. And, you know, when you approach some cities there, it literally looks like something out of a science fiction novel, the air is so dirty. So I tried to evoke all that. And also the, you know, the the sorrow and sadness that came with trying to rebuild a country from nothing. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of it came, I think a lot of those things came from my experiences there. And uh, I, you know, I, I wanted to, find a link between the story I was going to tell on the Mexican border with another inhumane situation in Bosnia. So I, I think, uh, I was able to draw a, a good parallel. Maybe I, as I, I always say a, a man's inhumanity to man. And I think it was there. And I introduced my main character, who's a native American, a Lakota Sioux. He's a scout for a ranger company and it's his first time really out of, off the reservation. And I, I wanted him I wanted to show the shock because he had been living in the in sort of an insulated world of, you know, Lakota Sioux and to, to come out in his first exposure to Western, the Western culture of, you know, maybe white, we'd say white people was seeing this confusing war among three different groups of white people fighting over God, basically fighting over God. And I wanted to show that, that confusion a little bit and also show him as a young man, a, a brave guy, you know, scouting and, just, you know, letting, letting us get to see life through his eyes and his first awakening as a young soldier of 19 or 20 with really extraordinary tracking skills, because that's what he, he brings to the scene. And um, so I, that's how I, I, I guess I, it was a plot device to a degree to introduce him when he was a young man. Right. When you introduce him, the imagery he's seeing uh, is, is some of the most, uh, you know, awful imagery that you can kind of think of as a in in a. Um, ethnic cleansing environment. Um, it's it's 
it's very thought provoking uh, what you what the picture you're painting. Well, you know, when I first wrote the first drafts, uh, a couple friends, my wife included, and a couple others, I, they said, Jeff, you've talked to me about this, and it's darker than you wrote. And I said, I know. And then I had a good friend uh, who's a writer as well out in L.A. who does screenplays. And uh, I'm not going to name him right now, but he, he was really helpful to me. And he says, Jeff, just Jake, just tell the, tell the truth. You know, just tell it like it is. The reader can't you can't fool the reader. So just tell it as it is. So I did. It, and it really comes through. Uh, there is a uh, the the imagery of. And I'm not going to. I want to give away the the, the story here. Um, but the imagery for Volk is just. It, it it really brings you back to what is man capable of, um, in the most awful situations. Yeah, I think we're always shocked with that. I think even now. I mean, we we've seen so many movies and read so many books about you know the, the camps, concentration camps in Germany, and. You know, of course, it always seemed a little bit historical to me until I saw it when I was there. And uh, I am you really you wonder how can somebody be whipped up into such a, a state? But obviously we're capable of it. I, I'm sorry to say. And, you know, like I say it's only a few chapters that introduces the character, but I think it sets the stage for what we're seeing, on a, you know, not as broad a scale on the Mexican border. But we are seeing with with the cartels who really also have very little or no value for human life. Absolutely. So for, uh, before we uh, kind of go into the major parts of the, the book for the part two, um, what what actually overall brought you to, to wanting to write this book? Well, uh, during while I was over in, in the Balkans, uh, mostly my job was to organize training programs. And uh, we had brought over some trackers, some military guys and also some Native American trackers to help teach uh, our allies there are some techniques in tracking and I got to know some of them they were Navajo and uh, I think a Pima tribe and uh, I at one point asked one of the military guys I said are you guys as good as they are and he goes no we're not as good as they are we don't even know how they can do all the things they could do because they're like magic and I got to know several of them quite well over periods of months and uh, I was just so impressed not only with their story the uniqueness of it, that they were able to do these things, the skills that were passed on for generations. Uh, I just decided that it would make a great book. I mean, I didn't want to, I didn't want to write a, 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 you know, just a nonfiction book because one, I'm not sure if my expertise could have handled it all. I, I, these, this is something that wasn't so well versed. So I, I thought, you know, there's, there's gotta be a real human story in this. So I, for about three or four more years before I finally stopped you know, doing my consulting overseas, I sort of was writing the book in my head. And uh, I imagined characters based upon stories I'd heard uh, from the different trackers and stuff. So I've always been kind of a, I always talk too much, you know, everybody always says I'm, t- I'm a jabbering and um, telling stories. And so someone said, maybe you ought to write a book, you tell so many stories. And so uh, it was one of those things I've thought about for so many years, because I've had, I've been lucky enough to have a, quite a, an interesting life. And uh, Never when I was doing my life, especially doing undercover ops in South America and stuff, that I ever think that I'd end up writing a book. But uh, it turned out that it went okay. I mean, I have to give credit. If the book's any good, I have to give credit to my editor and several other people that have helped me along the way uh, to make me actually sound smarter than I am. But uh, anyway, it's it's, uh, it's been a great experience. And so uh, I think it was really good to, to, to write these things down and, and uh, give credit because – you know, I just think that people don't realize that we always say, well, we're, we thank you for your service. But 
you know, a lot of soldiers, I, I think that they do a lot more than just us saying thank you for your service. So I wanted to show what people that are doing for us, whether it's soldiers, whether it's trackers on our border, whether it's people fighting these fights against the real bad people. I thought, well, this story kind of helps to tell that, tell that tale. And it's definitely coming through. Uh, so th- your time with the trackers um, uh, while you were uh, while you were overseas, uh, it, it seems like it really imparted a, a kind of respect for Native American culture. Because I kind of see it woven into the entire fabric of this book. Yeah, it did. It did. It really did. And uh, you know, I I have to say, I, uh, the, one of the gentlemen that was with me a lot, I. I told him, I said, you're the guy I always wanted to grow up to be, you know, you're, you know, the guy could <laughs> just do so much. And I sat in on some of the trainings sometimes. And then towards the end of these really serious trainings, they let, they have practical exercises and he let me partake in it. He says, and he said, you know, they have people go out and then they track them hours later. And he'd say, now do you see that? And my God, I'd look at the same spot he was pointing at until my eyes popped out of my head and I couldn't see anything. <laughs> you know, I just didn't have it. And I don't know how they can do it. It's just amazing. Know it's passed on from generation to generation, but it's quite extraordinary. And I, uh, I just thought that their lives uh, were were definitely something for a book. Uh, I mean, you, you do, some of the sequences you have in the book where you know it's it's, it's the middle of the night and they're they're tracking uh, some of the bad guys, um, and you're you're creating that environment where I, I can put myself in kind of you know imagine just seeing this this essentially a hunter stalking his prey is is uh, is extremely vivid. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny, I, I have to, you know, so many people helped me with this book. And I, I had, uh, you know, a colonel, from, a Green Beret colonel, some rangers have helped and, you know, just giving me little tidbits of how to, you know, what it feels like to be out in the field and doing these things. And, and then, uh, you know, I added my, my work when I was working in, in drugs, especially in places like the Everglades and places when you'd be, you know, going after these real serious bad guys or meeting them in the jungles down in Central America, you just, I guess, it was nice because I, I could draw upon those experiences. Of course, it's fiction, so you try to make them as interesting as you can. Um, but I think it helped me a lot in writing it, just the mindset of knowing what it's like uh, to do those things. Now, something that's uh, always striking for me when I'm reading military fiction, uh, especially when you're talking about some of the state-on-state stuff, it's it's hard to write um, good bad guys. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, you're writing about the cartel, it, it makes it, um, so much more vivid when you can have the bad, the bad guys, they are some of the worst folks out there and, and you really paint that well. I think I did get to know them quite well. I mean, our operations, uh, against the cartels. And in those days we were up against the Cali and Medellin cartels and you met really serious bad guys. I mean, you met them to negotiate drug deals and, uh, you really realize that you are looking at you know, cold-blooded sociopaths. I mean, they don't care. I mean, they used to have a saying in Miami, uh, you know, when the Colombians were making a decision uh, about, they doubted somebody, and one of them was famous. I can't remember which one of the cartel bosses is, when in doubt, just kill everybody. And that was pretty much the case. You know, we saw that so often. If we tried to, what we used to call flipping somebody, if we tried to arrest somebody and then get them to turn on their bosses, uh, it was a very risky situation because the Colombians, if they thought there was any chance that they were cooperating with us, they just kill them. And I tried to impart that. I mean, I'm dealing with in the book, I deal with Mexican cartels. But, you know, in that job occupation, someone who's running these huge, powerful organizations, there's really no difference. I mean, there might be a little difference in the accent in, the, in between a Colombian and a Mexican. But other than that, uh, the cartel bosses are what they are. They're ruthless, evil men. 
Right. And he, I think you, you have all the cartel bosses in the uh, in in the in the book. He's um he's almost trying to call back to uh, I guess he's trying to get a sense of power from from Aztec heritage and some of the gruesomeness that he's doing. Well, you know, it's yeah. And my formal training in university was in in foreign languages. And so I got to read a lot about the Mexican and the South American conquests, you know, like, by the Europeans. And there, I, I think it's a very unique situation in Mexico because it's a, you know, the, the Spanish, you know, c- conquest impacted their lives completely forever. And so many of their Native American cultures were, they weren't put on reservations. They were almost assimilated into it. And you almost had a different, uh, a different ethnic group, you know, a combination of Spanish and, and, and Native Americans. But there is, there are a lot of parts in Mexico where, uh, in places like Chiapas and stuff, where they would like to get rid of the yoke of of Western civilization and go back to their native roots. And so I, I sort of tapped into that with this with this main character, the main bad guy, in that he's saying he wants to go back to his Aztec roots and cast off everything from Christianity to the Spanish language to everything and to speak in their native tongue. And yes, maybe it's not all genuine in, in my character's mind. I mean, because he's really using it to amass power, but he's also getting the people behind him because there's so much resentment towards, you know, this this Western civilization. So uh, I, I'm trying to, I guess I, he's kind of an enigma because we don't know if he's if he's really means it or if he's using it as a ploy, but either way, it's working for him. And, and I really go to make a more complex and believable uh, character. Um, at least, at least from my perspective as a reader. Yeah, I think it. it I think it does. I mean, because we don't know exactly. He's very. He's, he stays. He stays quite unreadable, uh, even to his own people that work for him. I mean, he demands loyalty from his people, his underbosses, who are in their own right very powerful. Ex- except when they're in his company, then they're all petrified of him. But when they go back out to run their own crews, so to speak, as the as the American mafia used to call them, crews, but they're 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 feared and everything else until they come to his stronghold in the Mexican highlands. And then they're petrified of him. And uh, I think he keeps my, I try to make this character at the point where, you know, he keeps his underlings petrified of him because the only thing that really rules in that world is fear. Well, and is that, is that something that you gain from your time? Uh, as far as you observe the, the kind of power dynamic between the boss and, and the uh, underlings? Absolutely. Absolutely. They have ultimate power. I mean, and in, really right now in Mexico, everybody's afraid of him. The government's afraid of him. I mean, the, I'm sure the president of Mexico is afraid of the cartels. And uh, I think it's quite clear when we read the headlines. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, in, I think it was in 2018, they were accounted, the cartels in Mexico accounted for 33,000 murders. I mean, consider that. That's unbelievable. Right. The, the amount of national motive, uh, mobilization that we would have in America, if that was uh, a problem here, would be obscene. Yeah, I think it would. I mean, uh, it's a situation. And, you know, and I, I tried to make this book very non-political because I, I recognize there's a political uh, narrative about the border and the crossings and stuff. And, and I, I don't take an issue with this one way or the other. All I know for sure is while we're fighting about it, the cartels are making money about it. And that's that's pure and simple. They don't care what our politics are because they're still going to get drugs here or people, because that, that's the other thing that I try to talk about. And, and we talk about it in the book a lot is that, you know, several of the cartel bosses down there have made the comment, you know, I can sell drugs only once. I can sell women multiple times. 
And uh, so they are really into trafficking women into the States. That is something in the book that I see a, uh, I see very well stated um, the the plight that that women face in in some of these dynamics. I mean, be it uh, be it in in central Bosnia or at the southern border at the you know at the uh, I guess the beset of the the cartels. It's just uh, it's horrific. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's I learned a great deal about it while I was in the Balkans uh, in Europe because it was really prevalent in Eastern Europe. Women had no money and they were being lured into traps and then t- their you know papers taken away and then they were placed into sexual slavery and they had no idea where they were even going to go. They were moved across borders by European organized crime bosses, you know. And there's a lot of really evil ones out there: the Albanians, the Russians, all of those people, and uh, they were kept in slavery and. I got to learn a lot about how that worked. I, you know, got to talk to victims of it and started to realize the, you know, the complete hopelessness of once you're trapped by this. Uh, and I think it came across in the book. I mean, everybody's told me it has now, uh, again, sometimes parts of the book are a little, little, not so much, but maybe a lot of them, they're violent, but they're dark on parts of it, but it's just the truth. And so maybe I, I just wanted people to know what it's really like to feel helpless in these situations i mean it's it, part of the messaging but it sounds like you're uh you're kind of sending a uh not a, not to say a shot across the bow um but kind of a cautionary tale that you know these are the things that are going to continue to happen if we uh you know we don't take these things seriously yeah i think they are and i mean um you know it's i know the average person you know living in you know a nice small American town maybe doesn't think of these issues, but uh, that doesn't make them not happen. They are there, they're happening. And uh, I, I, I think I, I try to paint the picture of that. And, you know, uh, one of the, in the book, uh, of course, I have my main character being uh, the Lakota Sioux, but I, I also have two Apache women trackers who um, really uh, become quite strong characters. In fact, they, they rival my main character as to be the main character. And, uh, I, I, I like to try to tell the story also through their eyes because these are really strong women, women who can track bad guys across the desert and their reaction to seeing these women enslaved and being dragged brutally across the desert, uh, I think kind of rings true as well. I, I, I see it's a, a literary tool. You're kind of uh, giving revenge to those women uh, through those women, female characters. In a way, yeah. Uh, I mean, and it's, it's funny because my two... The, the two, my two Apache women trackers, they're very traditional, even more so than, than my Lakota main character. These, these women are proud, fierce, proud Apache women and uh, proud of their heritage. And rightfully so. They were, they were, they owned the desert. They, they owned the mountains of Arizona, you know, uh, and they even use some of their language to, to talk about things. And, and in a way they're very, uh, even in their own, even in the Native American culture, they view themselves as one of the more superior warriors of all the tribes. And I, I kind of let that come out because they're proud of themselves and, and rightfully so. That's something that uh, as having a, a proud warrior heritage uh, that of the Apache has always uh, been um, extremely interesting to me as a, as a reader. Yeah. And, you know, and one of my characters is she's an older woman, but she kind of runs the whole Shadow Wolves outfit as, uh, as an informal boss, as a Comanche. And I, when I'm in my research, I was just shocked when I, I I'm not shocked. I was just overwhelmed with it. I, when I read a, 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 a nonfiction book about the Comanche and it, it, the Comanche are maybe were maybe reputed to be the fiercest of all the Native American tribes. And 
uh, it was an account about how the Spanish conquest, how they just pushed through Mexico and Latin America and, you know, killed so many people, millions and millions of, of Native of Native Americans in, in Mexico. And then all of a sudden they came across to what is now Texas uh, and what was referred to in there as the Comancheria, which was a huge section ruled by the Comanche. And it was the first time that the Spanish conquerors were no longer the conquerors. They were the prey. And they scooted right back down into Mexico after a short forays up into that area because they were so afraid of the Comanches. The Comanches were so fierce that they were the first people, Native American people, to turn back the Spanish conquerors. I mean, you can only imagine how they felt, uh, you know, at, at conquering these, these people after these people and then hitting that brick wall, uh, you know, of a culture. Yeah, it was really amazing. I was really happy to read it. But uh, again, I, I learned a lot about the Native American tribe. I'm no expert on it, but I think I drew enough on it to at least tell a, a, a viable tale. And I'm going to continue to tell, tell it in the, in the sequel to the book. Are you uh, currently working on a sequel now? Yeah, I'm probably halfway finished. I hope to have it finished by the end of summer, maybe uh, sooner. But um, it's going to be called Ghost Walker, and it's going to continue the saga that starts in the first book. You expect to have the same uh, set of character characters? Yeah, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, at least the ones that survived this book. Yes. <laughs> so oh, no spoilers that. on that. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I do. I do think it's going to I'm really happy with the second book and it's actually coming off my fingers a little faster than the first one did. And uh, I'm really anxious to, to finish it. I mean, at least the rough draft should be finished within about two months and then the editors get it and make it look better. Well, Jake, I think I, I've stolen enough of your time uh, time here before we go. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to say uh, to the potential readers out there? No, I just hope if they if they get it, it's available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and some of the stores of Barnes and Noble as well. Uh, and uh, if they like it, just tell other people because uh, I'm finding an audience. And you know, we're, we're just really now. It just got released uh, worldwide. It's released in Italy and, and uh, UK and a couple other countries that you know read English language stuff. It's it's it's, it's available there also on Amazon. And uh, I'm getting some pretty good reviews, which I'm I'm happy. I mean, I didn't know how this was going to turn out, but uh, I guess if anybody does re- read it and, and they like it, please tell your friends. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, again, thank you for your time, uh, and I I can't wait to to read Ghost Walker. Okay, thank you, Lawrence. <laughs>